This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Teokasin Ghost Horse. If we think peace with Earth rather than peace on earth. One means domination, one means relational. Teokasin is a member of the Cheyenne River Lakota Nation of South Dakota and has a long history with indigenous activism and advocacy. Teokasin is the founder, host, and executive producer of First Voices Radio for the last 28 years. Well, Teokasin, thank you so much for joining me today. As we were chatting earlier, I have so many of my dear friends have come to me before this interview feeling so jazzed that I get to speak to you. So this is a great day for me. And thank you for joining us. Oh, it's an honor always to join people who are interested in the earth first. And uh, in our language, we see tokahe maka'ina. Is, uh, we think of Mother Earth first because the energy is sent to us, uploaded to us from her as always. And then later on, I think we can think about downloading from the sky as sky gods as it is, you know, and I think that's, that's all part of the balance and I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Mm. Well, I'd like to begin our conversation by talking about something that I think is becoming more and more prominent, which is the savior complex that can arise when we think about the many issues earth is periled by at the moment. In your article, Indigenous Languages as Cures of the Earth, you write, quote, We all rush in like fools to find more solutions, better remedies, fix-its from the profit makers, and fuzzy warm language to comfort the addicted aspects of ourselves. We make films, Facebook pages, petitions. We ask politicians to do our bidding. We cast votes virtually because we have to save our country, save the world, save the earth save the whales, save anything but our own sanity, end quote. And yeah, I think most of us can relate to this frenetic energy you describe, but I also think about how these actions are propelled by what we might identify as love or passion and rage for what we feel is important. So my question is, how do we interrogate our savior complex while also acknowledging these tremendous emotions of love and loss? That's a great question, and thanks for that little challenge. It, it, I was kind of waiting for that. That's great. Thank you for that, Ayana. Well, you know, in, in the original intuition of Lakota language, intuition of all of us, I would say, without any filters of what intuition is by giving a definition from this perspective of the Western mind, which I've been educated in, and as Robert Clemens, our 
Mark Twain said, it took me years to get over, to get over it, right? So when I'm into thinking about what happens when we lose contact, we lose relationship with the earth, we are constantly looking for, for that search for ourselves in others. And it gives way because of our loss of instruction. It gives way to the fact that somebody else can come and rescue us. And when I think about, okay, the original instructions, the original intuition is the fact that even today, people go out to the wild, go out to nature, go someplace and to heal, basically, to understand. And, and usually it's a, this sort of benevolence of, I can go to the wild, to the earth, to nature, to listen. And when I think about that, it's, well, I think it's different when we were taught as young people that we can, yes, we can go to the earth and mother nature to listen, but in the, this, the fullness of the thought where most indigenous peoples kind of, you know, look in that wonderment and what do you mean going to the earth and listen for lessons actually. And then what we understand is, as one native person, I would just say this way, is that we usually have gone to the earth to find out how Mother Earth is listening to us. And that takes a lifetime. It just doesn't come up with a cause and effect. You know, we go, we get rewarded, we come back, and then we have the answer, the solution. So I think the savior mentality is tied up in the cause and effect of we have solutions to save uh, what we can of our, our possessive, our environment, our climate, our earth, our, everything is, is a possessive. And so when, when it comes to the savior mentality, the salvation point mentality, is that there is always going to be salvation for us as long as we follow the rules and regulations of, of an authority figure, religion, science, or government. And all those have authority figures where you look at it the other way in relational languages and in they, indigenous languages, there is no need for monotheism, an authority, because that domination does not fit authority. Dom, well, it does actually. Domination and authority go together, but domination does not fit relational languages. And relational languages, everything Everything is in scope, everything is relative, everything is related, and there's no need to get connected or even save that which is giving, giving you all the answers, all the, the uh, meeting all your needs as Mother Earth does. So Mother Earth does indeed listen to us and gives us all that we need, all our cries, all our whimpers, all our prayers. She answers it, gives us food, gives us water, gives us warmth, and, and we learn in between those like warm and cold, we learn what the balance is. We learn what the rhythm is. And so once we are into the rhythm, you can really start questioning, what is savior mentality? What is salvation point mentality? We're always looking for the solution. So I think rather than looking for the solution, what happens is we need to acknowledge where we are at in this consciousness or in this, uh, this uh, continuum of being in the present. And th this comes through when, when you speak your indigenous language. And most indigenous languages that I know of uh, don't have nouns. So therefore, there can no be, can, cannot be a savior mentality. 
Now you see how the Western mind, I can tell you the Western mind tries to take all of what I just said and put it into the box of, I need to find the answer to why is this? We need a reference. We need something so that we can learn how to, as if how to was a manual to, to do something. And, and what we've forgotten is that Mother Earth is always listening to us. Mother Earth is always teaching us lesson. There's not one time in human history that humans can teach Mother Earth any lesson, you see. And so that's our arrogance to think that we can control the Earth. We can, you know, do what we want to the Earth, what we want to the Earth, and even save the Earth. And so in that sense, you know, the Western mind, the Euro-Western, wants to be at the top of the heap so that they can... I don't know what it is, uh, reward, ca cause and effect, uh, taken reward or given reward type of mentality, a dualism. And you see that Mother Earth is not like that. It's very many, many qualities of communication she has. So uh, I guess that's a long way of understanding or trying to answer the question of what is savior mentality. Hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's something that was coming up for me was maybe it's about control and that need of control potentially stems from some type of fear. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I have really been stepping away from the idea of solutions or savior mentality. Although I know I was very wrapped up in that, you know, back in my, uh, just honestly a few years ago. And so it feels relieving to challenge the savior mentality and challenge that frantic need to be dominant, whether that dominance is coming from good intentions or not. Yeah, so it's really helpful hearing that response. And similarly, I think about non-Indigenous folks' hyperfixation with climate collapse in terms of end times, rather than thinking about this moment as being a part of the Earth cycle. And because all of the data on warming temperatures, depleted soil, loss of diversity, and I understand why so many of us struggle with this, but speaking for myself, the more I've learned about climate collapse, the less prepared I feel, like the less I know. And that makes sense because if we are mired in a spiritual problem, then of course the data isn't going to do much for us. So I wonder if you could speak to that space between education and wisdom as we try to wrap our minds and hearts around Earth's transformation. Again, another good question. In 1492, you find that Bartolomeu de las Casas, the priest who went with Columbus and followed up a few years later about how the, the native peoples and those islands saw the, the, the comers, the newcomers, and and what the difference was in how they denied the earth, how they conquered the earth, how they did this possession ceremony on one of the islands and stuck a staff and into the earth and claimed her in a sense, you know? So there was the patriarchy coming in with, with about 2000 years of that same language of domination. It's, it's in basically the language and the behavior all of the explorations, all the domination, all the colonization before they got here. So what we're saying, what I'm saying is that the climate denial has been since we noticed it back then. 
And we've been saying this for a long time. Native peoples have noticed this. And we've been telling people all along. So it would make sense to me, well, if we've been saying these things for 500 years, why aren't they listening to us? You know, because we're listening to the earth as much as we know that the earth is listening to us. And this is why we don't want to take too much or even apply theory, which a lot of indigenous language don't have in their original base languages, there's no need to theorize, no need to show like a theater and put on a, an act or a play. Um, it, it's really about what is practical mystery. The mystery is the energy and that transformation. So when we see the earth changing, we want to, you know, because we're uncomfortable. And then we, we tend to blame ourselves, which is partly true. It's only blaming ourselves as far as we don't want to take uh, responsibility for what we are still doing to ourselves as well as the rest of, rest of life. But you see, we always have faith in the earth, with the earth, because that's where our language comes from. The earth doesn't lie, so therefore our languages do not lie. And so when we speak directly, that's called rude, that's called no manners, that's called, uh, you know, every, everything that it doesn't fit the pretension of manners in the Western European mind because it's, they've been um, corralled into speaking a restrictive language, a restrictive thinking for that long until they got here 500 years ago. And so you think about how that began way back there in Western democracy. And, and when we think about the climate denial, you know, people were trying to leave the earth even then, you know, and then once they, they were able to achieve some amount of civilizational success, then that's when they start uh, denigrating those peoples who still have and had and lived with the consciousness of earth. So basically they had peace with earth. These other ones were mental justice seekers. And so all the laws, even today in the U.S. government, any government, is to control the human mind through man-made or human-made laws because it's all about mental justice. It's all about keeping you away from the, the earth justice, the, the true justice that is with the earth. And so, yes, education becomes somewhat of a secondary uh, uh, environment, becomes somewhat of a secondary thought. And because we can be educated about the earth, and as you said, said earlier, it becomes all numbers and measurements and weights and what, what good is it to us. So, yes, I think part of this climate denial that we're just so hyper on is that we, we have this thing that's halfway true that we listen to. It says, trust science but we don't know what we're saying with the, with the etymology of the word science. And we could, we could look at that. And that's why I, I asked others who speak this language better than I do to look at their, their etymology and what are they basically spelling? You know, what is their spell that they're putting on themselves as others? Because you, this language we speak doesn't go that far back or back that far. Um, so it's, 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 it's this, it's too big for for this mind of of uh, restrictive thinking, um, but our hearts understand that there's something going on. We couldn't. Our hearts never say it's wrong or right. It's our minds who follow the rules and regulations and don't want to believe others because we we have been schooled and educated that we are right because we have the measurements right here and that science always changes 
because that science is controlled by Earth, if I could use the word control. Every time the Earth changes, those numbers and statistics and weights and predictions and whatever forecasts, everything changes because, you know, half of that is 50-50 chance anyway. But you have these so-called uncivilized primitive native people who've been kind of been practical all this time. And as my uncle says, you know, in, in a sort of a metaphorical way, you can, you can't take it with you. So why take it now? You see? And so when we, we look at this, is that, is that what's going on now? Are we trying to save the earth to take with us? Or are we trying to leave, leave a legacy and see the work within our time so that we're proud of ourselves and take credit for us because I have a piece of paper that says I know something because I, I followed the rules and regulations of that dualism. And when it comes to the practicality of that, I could not really apply any of that education to the, the, the work that is required by the earth because that education always taught me, oh, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. Um, because a lot of us had that money to go to school, right? Then it really drew you away from the spirit of what the earth meant to be. And this is why uh, looking at earth's transformation is really that we're transfixed, that we can change the transformation so that it's saved for those who could afford to save the whale, those who can afford to save the national park. And all those ideas are just beyond indigenous folks, the ones who aren't colonized. They're like, wait a minute, how, how can you do that when Mother Earth is already in movement? Never questioning, always moving and caring about us at the same time. Now, that's the understanding that I think we have disconnected ourselves from. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really sitting with my own desire to protect what is left and and also wanting to be in relationship rather than wanting to go back into that savior mentality but it's really challenging especially with the emotional just the grief of what is being lost and uh, so I think I'm gonna have to sit with this more just on a personal level of how to reckon with the reality of this time and what it actually means to be in right relationship with each other and the earth in general. <sighs> so yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's a really big one. Something that's come up in conversation for me is the importance of shattering binary thinking and welcoming complication because so many of us are finally learning that simplifications and processes of efficacy are not to our benefit or betterment. They're certainly easier to navigate and profit off of, but that's about it. And so I wonder if you could relate this to how showing up for the earth requires one to remove themselves from the nature-humanity binary. Or perhaps if you think there is a relationship between revering complexity and shattering binary thinking. We have a saying that we kind of uh, reinterpret into all my relations. It's called Medakoi Oyasi. And what really Medakoi Oyasi, it, you, can, you cannot feel, you cannot think in dual, dualism. You can think only in inclusion. And 
if there is no word for exclusion in our languages, then you see how further along we've come in that process of evolving our spirits into understanding the transformation, the complexity, the simplicity that is the complexity, because people want to think that they have to down dress or the, the idea of complexity. So it's simple, but yet if you're speaking the languages of the earth, like I said, earth doesn't lie. And so your languages are along the complexities of the earth and you see how many, so much variants of, of species and how to, to deal with the weather and all in you know, all of that is to not think that we're in control of it or even that God made this for us, you see. And so once we let go of those um, domination thought processes, that more than two-dimensional thought process wake up and they, they come and you're, you're like, wait now, we can't know all of this. We're, we're spending our time gathering information without ever experiencing it. So we are, we are stuck with the ideas of information and knowledge. And then we refer to, well, someone who's, who's uh, tenured in an educational process is wise now because he's tenured, he needs older, she's older. And so they're wise. And yet those textbook uh, knowledge keepers are not ever experienced. So they may go out and study here and there. But when you have indigenous peoples always in the rhythm of the earth, they're not educated, but yet in a sense of taking this concept of education and trying to put it on Native people, it's, it's like injecting with them with something, right? And they're not ever going to understand it because they're already too far ahead of education that, that, that this system requires in, for, in order for you to get ahead. But with the indigenous processes of Earth, it doesn't need education. It needs the experience with and that way, we spend all of our times trying to reinterpret something that we can't wrap it around our minds, and we're stuck in the same cycle of cause and effect. How do, how do you do this, and what do you do? And that is the point of privilege that we come from, is that I have a question, you answer it for me, and you tell me how to do something so I can take it easy the rest of my life type of thing. But yet there's, there, we, we avoid the, the suffering, we avoid the pain, we avoid the grief, as you said. So I think one thing to, to know is that that energy that we all have, every one of us, even other life forms, is that because every moment, there is no question that every moment we live in innocence. Now, without the ties or the tethers to guilt, you know, so every moment is innocent. And then it's true. It's not because you're a child that you're innocent. And then you become guilty and, you know, dark and all these things. It's no, every, that energy is the same. It's innocent. It doesn't matter if you're 85 or you're one year old, that energy is still the same. It's just how you are living with it. As you see, children are living with the energy. But because of the programming and the system, we get away from living with the energy and we start using reality rather than living reality. And so that energy changes until we run into people who have never really left that energy and the acknowledgement of the continuum of just being in the present all the time, rather tied to the past, rather than being, you know, in anticipation of a future, the hope process, uh, you know, because we have the education, therefore our technology is going to save for us save it for us. And, and I think part of that is 
understanding inclusivity, your relationship, rather than connectivity or exclusiveness, you see. I'd like to ask you about the use of prophecy because I think this is a term that has really been misunderstood by New Age understanding. But you point out that prophecy is not the ego's voyage into the future and it's not inherently punitive. And to some extent, I wonder if we really understood the use of prophecy, it might encourage us to desire different outcomes altogether. So can you clear up some of the misunderstandings you hear most often when people bring up the idea of prophecy? I think the, the current definition we use in the Western world, I'll make the difference here, is we, we tend to make these prophecies like, like prophets into magical ones or magic people. And it's kind of true, but it's still with, you know, chance. And if that doesn't come true, it's like forecasting the weather and it goes wrong, then you you hate the weather because you didn't forecast it right. So that definition is with whoever took, has taken the, the true essence and the definition of prophecy away and put it into a mental mental concept. And so when I think about, well, what is, what is a um, prophet in that sense? So in a lot of indigenous languages, a prophet would be one who has observed the earth as, as an earth person, an earth being, and knows what the seasons are, and knows that the stars, the following the stars, and know and knows that intelligence, right? And so you see how much or how less these prophets really think of human invention, human technology. You can dig up the earth and make all kinds of machines to, you know, say, oh, look, we can at least to predict the earthquake. And all it is is that, oh, we dug up the earth. You know, oh, we we can dig up the earth and, and cut down all the trees and then we can predict that there will be, you know, land erosion uh, from the book that's made by trees and still not see. We only see the elephant in the room or no one talks about the room, you know? So it's a system that I'm saying the prophets, the prophecy that is punitive. If it doesn't come true, you hate it, you don't like it. And therefore, it's a given reward system. In the other way of thinking, prophecy is coming from experience. If you do it this way, then it may come true. And if you don't do it that way, well, you know, there's a chance that it won't come true. And you're just kind of, you know, shooting it into the darkness, so to speak. So I think it's more based on reality and the more experienced you are with the history passed on 
by women, actually, the, the detailing history passed on generations and generations. And we're talking 20,000 generations on this side of the earth, you know? And from that primal thought, as we say, we, we can't say we begin over there, we're using Western time scale. So 20,000 years of passing the same song, the same songs is practically the same language to understand what prophecy is that you can actually, oh yeah, those, those uh, birds, they come back every seven years. And, you know, we, we can say that, that much, but that's practical. That's practical prophecy. So, and, and then if you understand the energy, here's the other thing with this, Ayana, is if you understand the energy of what magic truly is, magi is not the genie that people think, because that's another westernized monotheism, is the, the magi is actually a bird who uses the tool of the earth to make magic. And what have we done? What are we doing as human beings? A fish is uh, using the, the water and even the air with the tools that they've been given. And that's magic. You see, we cannot live in water. We cannot live in fire. We cannot live, you know, without a plane up there in the sky. We can't live in stone. And yet all of those tools of the earth are being used properly. The energy is being used properly by the magi, the wise ones of the earth who know who uh, use the tools of the earth properly. And with our technology, we become magicians. We fool ourselves, we fool ourselves, everything else, but we cannot fool nature. So these magicians, this illusion that we can save the earth that we've been talking about before and the complexity of that energy is not understood because we don't speak the language. We try to put it into quantum physics, mathematical formulas, and yet that goes only so far. But when we put it into within the language of the energy we speak, then you have a living language that goes along with the prophecy that you talk about. So, you know, in that way, we have to maybe redefine or talk about prophecy a little bit more rather than the accepted idea of what prophecy is in the biblical sense. Hmm. Oh, there's a lot to chew on there. <laughs> uh, that was, yeah, I, I hear that word so often these days, and that was really clarifying. So thank you. Yeah, I want to read another quote that you wrote, and it's, I would further the idea of getting, giving the land back to earth herself first then the native people, so we can live with our languages, cultures, and mistakes that we made by accepting education too easily and almost losing the wisdom of experience with her. I would suggest doing that in a hurry before Earth takes the land back for herself from all of you ownership and steward-thinking people, end quote. This is a topic that continually needs to be brought up so that it may take on a life of its own, so bluntly, I'd like to ask about giving land back to herself and the profound beauty within that and how that sediment fits into the larger conversation of land back. In, in the beginning, I talked about domination. We have no word, idea, or concept of the word domination. So that means that we can't lord over, we can't dominate the earth in a sense we have to relate and because that feels healthier. When you're isolated in domination, you feel like you're, you're God, playing God, so to speak. And Earth is kind of like uh, having patience with that, I suppose, all this time. 
but she's always been giving us the land, right? She's always giving it to us through the food with everything that grows with her, the, the, the warmth, the whatever, showing us lessons. So in that way, you know, we, we can never understand how she really truly restores herself because that science says we need to take her apart in order to understand how she restores herself. But in taking her apart, we lose a little bit of ourselves from actually understanding a relationship and a spiritual energy connection in that way. So when you think about Native peoples um, who are living with that language without science, but the science is in it, living with the culture of the earth and understanding the mistakes that we made now, especially with this Western education that helps us to lose how we live with the earth. In other words, that land was that we lived on was taken away from us. So we start losing that experience with her. We start losing the language and start losing the culture. And we start making the mistakes of the Western, what education accepts. And so once we have that, we get a little bit further away every year with every generation. And we want to hurry up and, and let's, let's get it now. Let's get it back because that's what the earth is doing. And that idea comes from, from the Western mind. But when I say, let's do this in a hurry bef uh, before the earth takes the land back for herself from all of you, is that in the beginning, again, we need to lose the idea of ownership and steward ship because that's one and the same it's very dichotomous and these these uh any thinking people would understand that the answers are already provided of how we cannot ever own the land and and i know it sounds like i'm rhetorical here but it, it's it's an idea of uh so into the intelligence that's been given to you by all the four elements it's given to you and it's it's not that we own that it's a gift and that gift keeps on giving so to speak if we have the respect and not try to ownership not try to own not try to steward and not definitely not try and try and try to dominate anybody or anything that already has a connection already is relating to that so if anything this is more of, of a statement to the western world that yes give the land back to us because we'll know what to do with it. Even if we made our mis make our mistakes by saying it's free to everybody and now everybody else owns it. But the difference is, Ayana, that we as Native people are still home. We may be landless, but we're still home. And that means that tie can never be set or severed, no matter what the system does or what the people thinks that we should be civilized. Yet civilizes, civilization is what's killing with ownership, stewardship, the education. I can just go on and on and say what's wrong with the Western hemisphere. I mean, it's Western thought process. But in the Western hemisphere, that the thought process is so deep that consciousness, no matter who brings this new type of education onto it, that education will never work with it because it doesn't know how to. It comes from over overseas where they put everything on and dominated and kings and lord and feudalism and hierarchy and you know they use the language of war and so this language of war is really now against the earth that's why we have to we think in in dualisms enemy or friend and right now it's, it's like we're using science to really try to save ourselves from what earth eventually will do is imminent that that she needs to change because we're the ones 
that are suffering from la lack of or loss of connection to the earth. Earth is not suffering from connection to us. She's always relating to us, you see? So what's the first medicine is to dokahe makaina, is to, to think of the earth first in the heart and the water. In the morning you get up, you're doing a ceremony all together with, with water, right? And, and the next thing is well, you look for food and you look for, for, for warmth and you look for these things that earth is giving to you. But where is our appreciation for that? So in that, the more we appreciate, the more we understand that we have to give back the land to the earth, you know, because it's hers anyway. So let her do, let her restore with us trying to stop trying to put fertilizer into places she doesn't want it because we're only adjusting we're adjusting earth to our needs rather than ourselves being needed by the earth, so to speak. You know, and we don't have to do that anymore. We, we have to adjust to the earth. I do want to bring back into the conversation something you were speaking earlier about the noun-centered languages versus earth languages. And there's a few questions I wanted to bring up here. One, I wonder if you could share how languages become noun-centered and why this specific delineation matters so much. And then, you know, is it possible to unnoun or denoun the languages that we have, like, is that even possible? Because I think many of us know the limitations of the English language, for instance, yet we continue to speak English. Its dominance is all around us. And then the question becomes, do we deconstruct English in English? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, um, I, I hear you. It, it would be more difficult, I think, for a native person to to try to decolonize or colon uh yeah that in that sense of decolonize is the meaning we have to not speak that language so because it throws us off from the many dimensional effects that are naturally within us tied to the earth or with the earth and it puts us into a two three mode of thinking three-dimensional mode at the most and then we think uh, tend to think out of that restrictiveness and so we want to control that. So we make, we title everything, we noun everything, we subjugate everything, we, we objectify everything. So we think of, essentially thinkify everything materially. And so we think we can do that to all life on earth, other people, you know, other worlds. And so there's no uh, respect in that. Now, what, what I've done is tried to reinterpret what I've been told by the Lakota elders that I talk with and just kind of coming to an understanding, oh yeah, this is what they mean, you know, is that if we turn, if we're able to, to think, and I use this three, three words in two different ways, is if we think peace with earth rather than peace on earth, one means domination, 
One means relational. So the relational language is found within English. And how do you relate? So in the original way to understand this language, indigenous language, and is that what we do is describe the energy. And then we describe the motion of the energy. And that way it makes, makes everything alive. So everything is alive to us. Everything is sentient. And now we can, you know, like, oh, but my mind says that pen that I write with cannot think. But yet you see what comes out of it. You see that it, it puts symbols down, it writes. So it's in our language, you call it wichazo, you know, the energy of, of wood that comes from the sun, so to speak. So it's a consciousness of the sun, the wood, and, and that's, what, that's what we come and we put it down in thoughts. That, and so we're, we're always in relationship with motion. And so when I think about what happens in English is, okay, this pen is no longer a pen. It's a penning you see, or that cup you're drinking your tea with. It's no longer a cup, it's cupping. So everything starts coming alive once you start understanding the language of noun. So cup can be a noun. It's like understanding self. Of course, we all say it starts with self when you understand I as a noun. And you look up in the dictionary, it's a noun. But in, in Lakota, I is a verb. You are a verb. You're vibrating, you're alive, you're moving. So then that removes the, the idea that there really needs not be an idea of I or me or my or mine or ours, because it's not about you, but it is about you being with all that sentient life. And that, you know, you're always a part of something. You start feeling like you're never going to be excluded and separated or lonely. So this is what the changing languages it doesn't mean that you have to go back in time that's to you just have to recognize where you are so that you know how far you've got to go you know i don't say involvement evolvement i'm saying be involved in evolvement that is a continuum of the earth of of the cosmos and you'll go and you start understanding how oh, indigenous folks they were sitting there 200,000 years ago watching the stars the same way as astronomers today do. But yet they, because of their understanding of that energy, they know what star we can't see with telescopes until the telescope gets closer to that star. And then the native people will say, oh, that's so-and-so. You've seen that with Kogi. You've seen that with people that, that we've been, their knowledges have been held back in the Western Hemisphere because it's based on supremacy, because the Western world has to be right. It has to be right. And by God, we are right, because look what we've done to you, for you people. We bought you computers and the atom bomb and bought you wars and process, you know, we can name all of those things. So I think by simply bringing things are, are alive that they already are by changing our language, I think that's going to be a process. I don't want to, I don't think I'm going to see it in my lifetime. I do I need to, except that the, uh, that idea has been in work in works in progress within indigenous peoples for forever, as far as I understand. Mm -hmm. 
just to continue on this language topic for one more question in indigenous languages as cures for the earth you write quote earth languages are not lies or manipulation to serve political religious economic or scientific rationalizations they are not invoked entrusted or gifted to be placed within linear boxes of data they are spoken every moment as cures where all praise goes to the earth end quote and yeah, I'll be honest, you know, some of my hesitations around talking about the importance of language is I think about, you know, the popularization of traditional ecological knowledge and how many of us welcomed the call to rethink our language, you know, the pronouns we give to the more than human world, our understandings of kinship, but ultimately this just transpired a change at the level of perception, not relation. And so I do question the connection between language and condition, at least for English speakers. So maybe you could respond to this or elaborate a bit further on the idea that language exists beyond speech and how we need to think about language as action. Yes. Wow. Okay. That that would probably take longer than my answer, which would, when I would teach at Yale, when I was talking to grad students and people looking for their PhDs. And, and you know, I'm like, who am I to be teaching all these people who are, you know, have these ideas that they're coming to extract from this indigenous person about how to further their, their um, I don't know, prestige in this society because it's based on information of what they took from other peoples. So I go back to, and this probably has something to do with it, tell me if it doesn't or not, so it's a little story that I read way back in the 90s about a young person who had a grad degree and and had gone and studied cultural anthropology. And he was able to get a grant and go to Zimbabwe, I think it was, and, and notice and, and, work, and live among. His grant was for usually 20 years, I think it was. And it was a good grant. And at the end, he was, he was supposed to make this book right write this book so he lived among the 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 bush men the bush people the tiny ones for 20 years and and he would write every day and he got into their cultural mores and you know what usually happens is that they understood what he was doing and so that he lived among them or at least close to them and he would have to come back to England once in a while to verify what he was doing and so he would go back and he would miss them so much and then it, later on in his years, he began to understand that my time is up, you know, 20 years and I'm going to run out of money. Should I ask for more? And he had mountains of information. And all that time, he's seen transitions of, of indigenous generations, maybe two, three generations come and go. And he stood, understood all that whole process of how they accepted death so well because they were actually living without thinking of need. And so once they, he saw these Bushmen, he, on his last, very last day, he had sat on a, on a hill with an incline sloping down to a valley. And so he was looking down his valley and looked up and he saw this most beautiful sunset you could ever see in Africa. And he thought, why did I miss this 20 years? And I'm, I didn't pay attention until now I've got a lonely heart and I see these things. 
And so he, he kind of romanticized that a little bit. And he saw these sat, you know, down. It was kind of in the evening watching the sunset. And he saw this little chimpanzee kind of walking on three and there's one arm and two legs. And in one arm, he had a little melon. And in that melon, he was kind of walking with three. And then down below him, and the chimpanzee kind of, he was watching the chimpanzee, and the chimpanzee kind of glanced up at the, the sun and then stopped and looked again. And he, he just kind of looked at the sun. He sat down basically in front of the man, who the cultural anthropologist, who was watching the little chimpanzee and a chimpanzee sat there and looked at the sun the same way he was looking at the sun. And then the little chimpanzee took the melon, stood up on his hind legs and held it above his head to the sun as long as he could, because, you know, they can't stand very long on their hind, their feet as long as we can. So, and then he stood there for minutes and, and then finally he put the, the melon down and then he left. That was his offering to the sun. And and that cultural anthropologist cried because it was the first time he realized that he didn't know a thing. He thought he knew everything because my traditional Western education taught me that I'm supposed to know everything as much as possible. And so he told his, told his uh, helpers, the Bushmen, who had his his packages his papers all packed up ready to go the next morning and he put them all had them put them all in a pile and he torched them he burned all his 20 years of research up because he thought he knew about what culture was and that little monkey had taught him everything about respect and then he never we never heard from him again he never wrote the book we heard the story. So when I'm thinking, what can we do where we are in this society at this time is really look to the earth once again without romanticizing it, without romanticizing indigenous peoples or having the answer. We are just only giving the relationship we still have with the earth what little that is. But to take that away would surely mean that there will be no more roots for the rest of humanity. I know it because if the rest of humanity are trying to ship off into another planet or something. And so you going back to that, we don't have the formula of colonization or decolonization because that's a formula. And we're given that by the Western world to work with, because that's supposed to be how we are in order to decolonize. And so to decolonize our language. And yet when we leave that formula alone, it comes out to where the simple, complex, heart-rendering respect that that little, little chimpanzee was giving to the sun by understanding the whole transition, the evolution, the reciprocity of what we're born with, you see. So I think that original intuition that I talked about is there within all of us. It's not some mental construct. It's not mental justice. It's original intuition. And what does that mean? You know, maybe it's there. Maybe we, we see it somewhere. It's not a gut feeling. It's not by chance. It's something that you can actually understand and live and feel. So I don't think we understand the energies. I don't think we understand the medicines 
that are given to us each and every second. And it's usually one of the, the ways that we're given the medicine to understand is to understand that every moment is innocent. Every moment is innocent. And that, it, you can say it clears the slate, but it's true no matter if you're a human being that's doing wrong things, you're still or in every moment that is innocent. And that is what we all can understand that every, can I say, every virus is innocent also. Is compassion, does compassion have a choice? You see, so we, we, can, we can understand Native peoples as much as this educational process allows us to. Because this educational process as an Indigenous person is always telling us what we can and cannot do. You see, and how we shouldn't say that because we're we're defaulted to getting along with the Western society or defaulted to saying the things that they like so that we can survive in it. So there's no relationship in that. There's only this given reward, this, this uh, cause and effect society of struggle, of, of survival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and as we begin to close this conversation, I'm thinking about the importance of remaining humble during these times. And our conversation today reminds me of the tremendous importance of remaining humble, seeking questions over answers, and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable with the complex and unknown. How do you think humility can foster us into embodying different ways of being on this earth? Isn't it kind of ironic how... We can't think humility, how we cannot think humbleness. We can be that, but we have to lose the thoughts that are constructed for us. Well, this is humble, humility. This is humbleness. To be clear with this and is that in, in a way we say umshila or umshika or in a way being humble or pitiful because look at us <laughs> as a species. We have to take other things to keep us here. We have to kill other things to be here. And all of that is done with arrogance. Oh, we, you know, we, we're, we're caused, we, we do this and we take that and we'll be good. We're, we're supreme to the earth. And so right now, I think the, the human peoples are going through a sense of humility um, because we, we base this lack of society, we're talking the lacking of, we're talking, you know, against, we're talking that we don't know how to be abundant anymore because that's been taken away from us, but no one knows how to be humble. And so humbleness to us is taught to us through the animal world, so to speak. And they are so respectful of each other that they don't want to overstep their bounds, yet they do. And when they do, the earth culls them back, not call, but culls them back. In other words, their the domination thinking will be called, we will be culled back. And I think that's what's going on. But to understand humility, the importance of it is to know that it's the most powerful place anyone can be. You understand the feeling of, of what it is to be with other beings when you're humble because you're not being dominant you're not being below you're just being with 
and giving that up rather than surrendering and knowing that being humble is what a baby is when they're born, what a mother is when she bears children, what a, a father is when they see that child. You may see that so-called miracle, but it's not a miracle. It's part of what we are, the humanness of it. Humility is the being part of the human. And are there human beings anymore? Seems like there are a lot of technical humans, according to certain rules and regulations and religions and sciences and, you know, but that's the part of a being human is humility. It doesn't mean shame. We should never think it means shame. It should mean that, yes, we can be humble by addressing our, our grief. We can be humble by addressing that. Maybe we've done a little too much with technology. We made that our savior. Maybe we've done a lot of things that we should have never done, but that's the, that's the wish list. And And I think part of this is understanding the humbleness that you need the earth. And I, I always want to understand like, okay, if I need the earth, does the earth need me? You know, and that seems to be <laughs> the question that we're not asking. Does the earth need us? You know, the other way around is that we need the earth. And we kind of get stuck with that thought. But the humbleness is that, wow, does the earth need us? Everything that we've spoken to has really impacted me deeply. And yeah, thank you so much, Tiokasin, for taking this time. Oh, thank you. And I wish I, I want Wakan for you all is that uh, that we all learn how to consciously apply mystery to everything. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Harrison Foster, Pia, and Lisabeth Russo. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Akram, and Francesca Glassbell, with research assistance by Julia Jackson.